Isaiah 55 this evening. I hit a kind of a low spot in preparation today. I just, Lord, this, it's not working for me, Isaiah, right now. And then he answered my prayer. I'm very excited. And hopefully uh, you will be too before I'm done. In this chapter, there are invitations to come, to seek, to worship the Lord. The title, in fact, is God's Invitations. And um, the prophet was excited over the message that he was going to deliver. And the first verse reveals that. If you look at verse 1 of Isaiah 55, he starts off with, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I mean, you know, if you, in your devotional time, maybe you can catch it. But he's very excited about what he has to say. You come out to a Wednesday night, midweek study, and you, you hear many of the same things over and over and over. It's from the text and also from the speaker. If he's, any, if he's constantly in the pulpit, he's certainly going to repeat himself. Well, that is part of our training. Any training worth going through is repetition. It's over and over and over until you get it, until you get it and you're real good at it. And this system of uh, preaching is something that God has instituted and has worked well for Christianity. It's difficult as, as it is for Christianity to plow forward in life. Imagine what it would be like if we did not have so many people interested in hearing what God has to say everywhere in the Scripture. Sunday, I enjoyed going to the, to the letter of Philemon. It's all part of God's Word, just as powerful in Philemon as it is in the Gospel of Mark or any, anywhere else. And these things, um, you know, we don't have to be profound. We have to be attentive to what God is saying. Well, what... Uh, the New Test what no New Testament reader can miss is God's call to sinners. If you come to the New Testament, you hear the voice of God calling to sinners, come to me. Whether a person receives it or not is another matter, but it, it is all over the pages of the New Testament, and here it is in the Old Testament. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This summarizes salvation by grace, through faith, you cannot earn it. You cannot buy your way into heaven. That's a, there's one of the repetitions. A Wednesday night crowd, a midweek service crowd, we know this. But it bears repeating. Salvation, which Christ gives, is without money and without price, but not without faith and not without blood. We know this, uh, but so many feel, seem to care, seem not to care. So few seem to care about this message. Well, don't let that discourage us because that's what the devil is aiming for. You got a better chance of hitting what you're aiming at. And Satan is aiming at us. And not just in one spot. He's got multiple red dots on us. And he's looking to discourage us. If, if Whatever he can take from us. He is a thief. Whatever he can steal, he will do it. And it is our responsibility to resist that, to identify it and take evasive actions to counterattack. 
Uh, again, I don't want to live my life on defense. I want to be the aggressor. But I can't do that in the Spirit without the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get carnal about the whole thing. Here the prophets, as they wrote, God was leading them. God excited this man to write everything he's saying in the, the book of Isaiah. In this world, we, um, we work for what we get. And we begin to think that way. And we can become suspicious of anything that is free if it is any value to it. Well, that transfers to the preaching of the gospel with some people. Some people seem not to understand that the gospel is free. The price has been paid. They just have to believe. And if you identify that in somebody, it's a good chance to break it down for them. Now, he mentions here, everyone who thirsts. Well, thirst tells of want. And people must want what God has to offer, what he is inviting the individual to come and receive. Thirst and hunger both indicators of interest in the Scripture. There's a lot of metaphor, of course, in Scripture. We love that. Some of it's not. Ten Commandments are really not metaphor. <laughs> it's right straight out. Don't do this. <laughs> and it's good. It's not a criticism. But there's nothing casual about a sinner's desire to be accepted by God. The world doesn't know these things. There's people outside of church walls. They don't think about these things. We do. And hopefully we'll have a chance to, to tell the, the lost soul or maybe the weak believer these special things about our faith. There's nothing casual about a sinner's desire to be accepted by God. And we pick it up in Revelation 22, almost the end of the, of the scripture. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts. Come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. See, this is a mini, you know, Isaiah 50, 55 verse 1 is a mini New Testament. Our Lord, he alludes to this verse in John chapter 7, that famous section where he's in the temple at the great feast, and John picks it up in chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day, that great Day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Well, he's got this verse in mind. Well, he's the author of it, and he's the finisher of it. The people's response to his saying that demonstrates that they understood his statement to be a messianic reference. And so here's their response to his saying that. Because he stands up with a loud voice, he cries that out. Anybody thirsts, come to me. No, no mere prophet could say that. You have to be divine. Well, their response in John 7, verse 40, Therefore many, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. And of course, others, you know, hemmed and hawed. But that always is, there's always someone. Well, since the speaker here in Isaiah 55 especially verses 1 through 5, is God himself, the connection that John is making affirms that the Messiah is divine. And then, you know, again, the, the apostles had that to, to tell the world that Jesus has come, the Son of God has come, that he is fully God, he's part of the Trinity, without uh, 
saying that, uh, that, that we have multiple gods. When Jesus walked on the water, and this is just one example, and he stopped the storm, and you know, Peter sank, and he gets Peter back in the boat, and everybody's in the boat now, and suddenly the boat's where it needs to be. Matthew and Mark tell us that they came and they worshipped him. And they said, truly you are the son of God. Well, that's a big deal because when we talk about Christ, he's just, he's God come to earth on our behalf. Yes, come. I'm sorry. I, I love that part about the Trinity. I love the Trinity. I love the Godhead and how it is given to us in Scripture and how it shows up. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, in this life, you know, there's a saying, cash is king. But in the economy of God, faith is, is, is better than cash. And the New Testament associates both water and wine with the Holy Spirit. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, John chapter 7, where we were reading about Jesus in the temple, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. And then John writes after that, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul, in the Ephesian letter, he says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here, the prophet also mentions milk. His living word is like milk in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. And, of course, to the babes in Christ, to newcomers in Christ, they receive the word. They take baby steps in the word, ideally speaking. And our Lord had apparently Isaiah 52, 55, verse 2 in mind when he said in John 6, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. It's very hard to do that for an entire lifetime. There's so many distractions, so many com- competitors for our attention and our devotion. And God says, well, then give me what you got. He has never yelled at me for not being everything I've wanted to be in Christ. Always patient, always gentle, always just that alone helps me to be patient and gentle, gentle with people. Though I don't think they always pick up on that because they're a little dull. <laughs> don't you see I'm being patient with you? Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Yeah, a lot of people in Isaiah's day didn't want to hear this, but there were a lot of them, that remnant was gobbling it up. He says that we are to take careful heed to God's words. And that brings blessings. Again, John's Gospel 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Well, if God has blessed you, don't be ashamed of that. I'm guilty for God blessing you. Uh, and, and, and don't think that God doesn't like you if you don't have the ble- as many blessings as the other person does. Competition messes up a lot of things. I- incidentally, before he says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly, he says, the thief has come to steal and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that more abundantly. God wants people to treat the gospel like food. A can't-live-without-it realization. 
Could you imagine if the polluted universities treated the gospel like food? No, I've got to have it. I'm hungry. I, I've got to have the gospel. Can you imagine if the sinister uh, news media treated the gospel that way? Or corrupted politicians? Well, it would be, be a different world. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Uh, he says, listen, approach and pay attention. The heed is it's not enough to just hear it, to listen, though that's important part. There are purposes behind these invitations. God draws sinners to himself. Through his word, more than anything. Second Peter chapter 1, we have the prophetic word, confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. I know it's hard. As you're, you're a youth, you know, you're growing, you've got so many things happening in your life. You still, you, 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 your mind is not where it's going to be as you mature. And uh, yet, you come to church and you hear pastors saying, you know, we have the scripture, the prophetic word. The prophecies, the predictive prophecies confirm that God's word is trustworthy and you do well to heed it. And then temptation comes. Failure, disappointment, setbacks, confusion, all these things. Well, again, we are supposed to face them in the faith and not crumble under the weight of these things. You don't have to like them. I don't like them. I don't like being tempted. I don't like the flesh. But I've got to face these things. And, and you know, uh, advantage goes to evil in this life. That's what the curse is all about. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. Because there was no sin yet amongst humans, Adam and Eve. So he could rest. But after they fell, that rest was over. And Jesus pointed that out. He says, I and my father work until now. And he's on the Sabbath when he's healing people. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Well, they already had a covenant for, I don't know, over a thousand years now. They had a covenant, a Mosaic covenant. What is Isaiah talking about? I'm going to make a covenant with you. Well, Jeremiah in the New Testament had Isaiah's words in mind. It comes from God. Jeremiah, a hundred years later, wrote, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It was very significant because at the time that Jeremiah wrote that, there was no longer a northern kingdom. He's speaking about a, uh, a rebuilt Israel of all the tribes, all the people, and beyond. In Mark's gospel, Jesus, when he was giving us the communion table... He said to his disciples, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Hebrews chapter 8, Paul builds on that. A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The one where, that Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah will repeat this in Isaiah 61, and it seems like they never got it. To this day, they don't seem to understand the fulfillment of these things. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, you're ministers of the new covenant. That's what we are as Christians. We, we love the Old Testament. But its mosaic rule has to, uh, is, is subject to the New Testament revelation. The sure mercies of J David. You know, there's only one David mentioned in the Bible. And he is, aside from Jesus Christ, he is the most mentioned person in the Bible. 
that ought to get your attention. That's saying, well, well, let me look into this life of this man, David. What's so special about David? Not that the others weren't special, but uh, you, you can't just sidestep that. Peter applies and uses the same language here, the sure mercies of David. He applies it to Jesus in Acts chapter 13. God's covenant with David is in 2 Samuel 7. There's a promise. In the midst of David being forgiven for dreadful sins, plural. Uh, they were dreadful. That a descendant of King David is what is being said here would reign on David's throne forever. Well, we now know that one, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 4 now. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Now, according to the rules of grammar, the pronoun him should refer to David. But by the collection of all the Messianic prophecies, we know this is Jesus Christ. And not only that, historical David could not fulfill these things. So by default, it goes to the Christ. And the next verse indicates that this is future. Verse 5. Talking about Jesus. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Well, this has not been fulfilled, but we catch glimpses of it. You know, a lot of Christians love to go to Israel. And that's not a, that's not a criticism. It's just a fact. And it's born out of this relationship between the believer and what God has done in, on that little piece of land in Israel. And that's not the only place Christians like to go to. We, you know, Christians go to Rome to see the Colosseum where Christians were persecuted. Some go to Turkey, want to see where the seven churches were. Very difficult to find some of, some of the remains of them. It's just uh, like barren land now. Well, and, and there used to be cities there. Anyway, coming back to this... Um, in uh, verse 5 is where we are. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations shall, who do not know you shall, shall run to you. And as I mentioned, we, we've seen some of this happen. Jerusalem will be the global center of worship. Jesus Christ will be glorified um, as the nations meet together to worship him there in Jerusalem. Zechariah, I love this verse. Zechariah has a lot to say about this, this age. He says... Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek Yahweh, Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before Yahweh, before the Lord, which is Christ. Now, it's an interesting little thing that Zechariah gives us here. He says, strong nations. In the millennial reign, there will be nations that will be thriving. Life will go on with much of the sin drained out of it. And it, it will be a very exciting time. We know that Messiah came not only for the Jewish people, but for all people. John 3.16, of course. But most Jews don't see it that way, and they didn't see it that way uh, in the ancient times either. The Jews largely misunderstood the gradual unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Now, that's not Bible Jargon, that's just a fact. God is gradually unfolding his plan. His, his Zen time um, plan also is gradually un unfolding. We now call it the gospel. 
And they resisted their Messiah because, and everybody should know this, he did not vanquish the Romans on the spot. Because he did not behave the way they wanted him to behave, they failing to recognize his gradual unfolding of God's plan, they voided out his words and his wonders. Well, he didn't kill the Romans. They wanted dead Gentiles, not converted Gentiles. That's not what God wanted. And it's in the scripture, it's in their scripture. That's what happened in the days of Christ. And many of them are still crucifying Christ in their hearts. The Hebrew prophets did not know that believing Jews and Gentiles would one day be united in a church, in the New Testament church. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3 and, and, and other places, but there's a main one, the first 12 verses of Ephesians 3. Furthermore, None of the prophets could see how difficult this integration was going to be. Isaiah couldn't see what Paul was going to have to put up with to try to tell the Jews, listen, your, your Sabbath days won't work in the Gentile world. How would you even reach Eskimos and you have to follow the Sabbath? You couldn't do it. It's impossible. It's, you know, you, God got you out of your little comfort zone in Israel and, and, and bringing all the Gentiles of the world into the faith. And to do that, he had to get the Sabbath out of the way. Quite remarkable. We'll come back to the Sabbath. He says, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Well, Jesus, he is the, referred to as the Holy One of Israel in the New Testament. The demons recognize him for who he was. We know who you are, the Holy One of God, which is the same meaning. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, Peter, but you denied the Holy One and the just. That's not two different entities, that's Christ. And ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Another Peter, Peter was saying, how messed up can you people be? And he's, he's just a lowly fisherman. He has no credentials. He was with Christ. Those are his credentials. And those are ours too. So, verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That should be a song. It is a song. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not taking the Lord's invitation seriously puts a soul at big risk. You know, seek the Lord while he may be found. In other words, he's hinting, he's saying, you know, he, there comes a time where he can't be found, and that's bad for you. He's no less God because you go to hell. And he's certainly a no less God because, no less God or greater God because you go to heaven, but he's sure that's what he wants. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So here comes more of the invitations just flying. Hey, everyone, if you don't have to have money for this, which for some people, you know, they think you have to buy anything the good has to be bought. Agree with God about sin so he can do something about your sin or else nothing's going to work for you well when you stand before God. There is no acceptable alternative. What do men, what can men say as a, here's an alternative to the gospel. I'll roll up my sleeves, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll, I'll earn my salvation. It's, it's laughable. Both the attitude and the behavior must depart the natural and pursue the spiritual, the New Testament's all over that. You know, the, 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 the spiritual man putting to death the old nature. And anything otherwise is rebellion. 
and uh, you know the hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of God. Uh, there's nothing in this life that's going to satisfy these things except, of course, God's plan of salvation. I hope it never gets boring or old news to us. And I'll also say, you know, you don't have to feel it when it's time to share it. You just have to obey. If you see the door open, you don't have to dance through it, but you do have to go through it. And, and that's, that creates an excitement all of its own. When Jesus said, I have meat to eat you know nothing about. He's, you know, preaching the truth to someone about God's kingdom and having them receive it is nourishment. Many in Isaiah's Israel considered religious observances a substitute for right living. Well, they do that now. There are many people that think, I put some money in the offering box, I go to church, I do this. Well, that's not a substitute for obedience. Obedience is a, is a demand all by itself. Also in Isaiah's day, there were those that were ask, asking God to forgive them for sins that they had no interest in giving up. And they did this by taking their sacrifices to the temple. There, it's done. And we see this today. I bought an indulgence, you know, I did this. I did a good deed. That ought to erase my sin. No, it won't. Only the blood of Christ takes away the sin. Let him return to Yahweh and he will have mercy on him. How many Christians lose sight of that when you stumble? When you, get, when you do the, when you don't, you know, you're not where, you, where Jesus would have you. And you feel it. Don't forget these important teachings from God's mouth to your ears. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Peter did. Judas Iscariot did not. And what happened to the two? One went to heaven, the other did not. All that is necessary to receive forgiveness is repentance. Of course, in repentance, there are elements which have to be present. And one of those elements, of course, is faith. You're going to trust what God has said and not just give him lip service. There is no mention here of ritual sacrifice, of mosaic sacrifice. He's talking about a, a sincere heart. Attitude is central to restoring a relationship between God and the sinner. But too often we think of the wicked in terms of human crimes. We think that doing bad things makes a person wicked. But God has a identified or defines the wicked as a class of humans outside of a relationship with his son. And that's one of our messages to the world. They don't like to hear it. Well, not telling them, not going to help them. Uh, many people do, have not wanted to hear the gospel and have gotten saved by hearing it. They come to church and they hear it. And the Lord grabs hold of their heart and they don't resist. They resist no more. He says here in verse 7, And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love that it is abundant. I have come that you may have life and that more abundantly. Peter was pardoned and Judas Iscariot was not. Because one availed himself of the mercy of God through confessing his sin. And the other just acknowledged, that was a bad idea, and I can't live with myself. And that did not help him one bit. The result of all the processes of Isaiah 53 are built into that. 
and our God will pardon, for he will, and our God will abundantly pardon. Verse 8 now. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways. I need to reread that. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about things to say while I'm saying something while I'm reading. And at the same time, they, they don't get it. It's oil and vinegar kind of a thing. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Why do people tend to suppose otherwise? Why do they think, well, sure, God thinks like me. I mean, they, don't, they might not even voice it. They're doing it. This is said to a people who are attempting to justify their sins by making the offerings, again, with an insincere heart. Reducing, you know, offerings to, at the temple to a rabbit's foot. To this day, they have, you know, a little thing on the doorway, and they touch it, they kiss, they touch it, as though that's going to somehow bless them. It's superstition. God wants none of that, because it's a lie. In the 50th Psalm, David wrote about this behavior, God speaking through David, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. I'm going to take my belt off and judge you. This is something, oh God, give us a chance to repeat these words to an unbeliever. You thought I was altogether like you. They scramble, they run, they come up. You know, you, you, you throw out a word, you, you say, you said to an unbeliever a couple of days ago, when they were giving me their spiel about what they think God is, I said, that's idolatry. It didn't go well. I mean, it didn't end up in a fist fight. But, you know, I knew that this door is closed right now. But I got to plant a seed in Satan's yard. That's what I got to do. And I knew it. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) They didn't know I was rejoicing. Well, they didn't. I wanted them to say, tell me more. But they did not. But I'm hoping that seed is just grating on them right now. God stick the hounds of heaven on them and convict them. Anyway, God works mysteriously and God works slowly and we must learn to continuously accept this, accept that this is how it is. Years ago, I was sitting and having coffee and at a coffee break with a co-worker, his old timer, and uh, he wanted to share some biblical wisdom with me and he was right on. He says, my mother told me that God works slow and mysteriously. And all I could say to that was amen. But he didn't change his life. He had that bit of information, that biblical doctrine. But he had no care for the Christ of the doctrine. There's nothing you could do with that. Well... Satan knows that he can cause a soul to dislike the person of God. I dislike God because I don't like that he works slowly and mysteriously. I want to know what's going on. I want the Bible to be organized this way. I want all the Bibles to match. I don't want different translations. I want everything to be in its neat little cubicle. That person's living outside of reality. And God is not. God says it doesn't work that way and it cannot work that way. 
Too many languages, too many people, too many cultures, too many generations. Everything that I've written, when you read it, and it's about you, you know it's true. You can go pick up as many translations as you want. Thou shalt not kill as thou shalt not kill. You shall have no false gods before me. The Ten Commandments is very clear. No matter what language you put it in. By creating dissatisfaction with God's timings and methods, you can seal your own fate. Well, eternal fate. Verse 9 and then this is a, incidentally, verse eight is a power verse. You do a whole sermon on, on that, and verse by verse, you just you take too much time on it. Verse nine: For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, part of the power verse that goes with verse eight. They go together. His ways are past finding out in many cases. And Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine tells us, yeah, God does hide some things, but he sure tells a lot of things, other things too. His character is clearly unfolded before us in Scripture, manifested uh, throughout Scripture. And I'm not going to take the time to quote them. Paul echoes this verse in Romans eleven thirty three. But the Christian, we spend our lives serving within this rhythm. Not outside of it. There's a rhythm to this. His ways are higher. And in many ways, past our finding out. And we surrender to that. And that's how we keep in this rhythm. Otherwise, there'd be no need to tell Christians to abide. Why do we have to be told that? Because things like this upset us. And if we're not careful, our faith diminishes. Verse 10. For as the rain comes down and... The snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now, I'll stop there in mid clause. Don't miss the come down part comes down from heaven and its application to God's word. Isaiah is not making a statement about the hydro cycles of the earth. He's making a point. That things come from God. They originate, he is the originator, the good, the word of God. And that's what he's talking about here. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Boy, there's a lot, of, a lot to go with that. But Jesus is basically telling them, I've come from heaven, you have not. And then in John 6... The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Yeah, but what if it's true? If it's true, I think you would you better side with him. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Yeah, you're going to need to go back up to verse 8 for my thoughts and not your thoughts and my way to understand all these things or accept them. But there is still much here that we get out of this. God's word does not return void in this way for sure. It creates a stir. It creates a movement. Good for some, troubling for others. God's word is his messenger. That is a fact. And when he says it shall not return void, 
His word serves as a demarcation, a barrier, not a barrier, a, um, a border. Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. There's that barrier. There's a border right there that separates a demarcation, a demarcation between the two. Numbers chapter 15. Because God's speaking about this misbehavior towards the things that he has told the people. Presumptuous behavior. You know, one of those, yeah, well, I'm going to be the exception to this. Well, God addresses that in Numbers 15.31. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. I think when you heard that, if you were one of the Jews in those days, the right response would be, would be I'm going to honor God's word. And uh, some did, and some did not. And God's word does not come back void in that sense. It gets work done. It separates the sheep from the goat. Those who are sincere from those who are insincere. The contrite heart versus the one that is just Really not that interested. And yet, they still want to participate in religion while they ignore the God of the very scripture who has given them, in many cases, the rituals that they go through. So God warned the people about living outside of his word, living presumptuously. David prayed, God, keep me from presumptuous sin. When our Lord used the word to refute the corruption of Satan there in the wilderness... The temptation of Christ. The word did not return void, did it? It accomplished at least two things. It halted Satan's further attempts to corrupt Jesus through corrupting the scripture. In other words, Jesus shut him up by using the scripture. So the scripture did not return void. It shut the devil up. It also did not return void in this sense. It stands as a textbook example on how to talk back to devils. Proper application of scripture in their face. I like that kind of stuff. But I also have to say, there's nothing easy about this life. It's just, you're going to have to still, by the sweat of the brow, you're going to have to fight and scratch for everything good. But knowing that God is backing you up, it's, it's, it makes it possible it makes it worth it. Ergo, that word, worthy. He is worthy. This does not mean, when we talk about God's word not returning void, that we get what we want. And we should be glad, because we also don't get what we deserve. So it kind of balances out. Verse 12, for, well, i got to stop. This is, a, this is another phrase that people like to say. And I like this one. I'm not going to, you know, I, how are you doing? I'm better than I deserve. Well, I could have told him that. <laughs> I was saying the same thing about you just to the, other, to the other guy. Verse 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Well, of course, it's not gonna, the trees aren't going to really clap. It'd be kind of spooky, right? I don't remember, this was that Alice in Wonderland? Where were those talking trees? They were mean, too. There was a couple of places they show up. Anyhow, and they're real big and heavy. 
Well, anyway, what's going on here? Ultimately, there will be rejoicing, and the scriptures loaded with this. And, and Christ mentioned this to the Pharisees when they, when he was marching into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they tell your disciples not to say these hosanna things about you. And he said, "Yeah, well, the rocks will cry out if they don't." Verse thirteen: Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress tree; instead of the briar shall come the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name and an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Well, cypress trees are beautiful trees. Some, some trees aren't that beautiful. Some are just scrawny. But uh, the cypress is just a beautiful tree. Uh, goodness, harmful. <clears throat> what, what's going on here with the thorn and the briar that stand out is the godless and the harmful, the self-centered lives the fruitless lives. A thorn is not fruit, and, and, you know, not edible fruit. And it, it's pictured in the thorn and the briar. Verse uh, Isaiah 56 now, in this section, God reveals a salvation that's made available for all who would follow him and keep his covenant, but also those outside, those outsiders. So he expands a little bit to the non-Israelites and the Israelites who restricted, who were restricted because of Mosaic law, well, he's going to invite them in. Verse 1 now, Thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Again, there are Jews in Israel that were loving this. Always encouraging the people to obey, to do good, to continue with him, to abide. Two virtues named here, justice and righteousness. Basic aspects of a proper Israeli life, or Israelite. They're really Israel. The difference between the Israelite is the Israelites were the people under the Mosaic law, the sons of, of, of Jacob. And in Israeli today, uh, there are, you can be a Muslim living in Israel, but you're a citizen, and you are an Israeli, but you're not an Israelite. So this is some, one of the differences there. Integrity is, belongs to this uh, towards others and, of course, in observing God's laws. The justice is um, more of a legal concern and righteousness is uh, out of the heart. Godly behavior. Verse 2, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Well, the phrase, the son of man, it, uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel loved that phrase, and it was God saying, you're finite, <laughs> you're going to die, you're a sinner, compared to me, you're not me, <laughs> you're not God. And in a very good way. And Ezekiel embraces that. I am the Son of Man. I'm a human being. I'm not God. Well, when Christ comes along, of course, it speaks of his humanity. I've come as one of you. I'm numbered with the sinners. And I'm not a sinner. And I'm not from here. But I'm identifying with you. And so it's, a, it's an identity issue, which um, I don't think there was one person anywhere in the Bible who questioned what the definition is of a man or woman. This is so stupid. It is, it is coming out of places like Harvard and Yale, and you've got you to gotta say these people are out of their mind with evil. Uh, and, and it needs to be mocked at every chance. 
It needs to be identified as a sickness out of hell. Because that's why they've gotten... All right, I don't know, I'm off going down this rabbit trail. But people, you know, you know if, if you don't correct things early on, if you just leave it, it's just going to get bigger. We learn this in cities where law enforcement does not enforce the law. Things get worse. It gets worse for everybody. So, yeah, don't have that stuff. Don't, don't, and they try to engage in a com- in, 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 if you've ever watched them, they try to engage in an intellectual debate. It's just like, let's intellectually debate whether water is wet. No, you're stupid. There's no other answer for that. Don't tolerate it. All right. <laughs> I, I get to be in my little world. But, I, I mean, I, that's just not going to tolerate that. If nobody's going to come up to me and debate with me about what the definition of a man and woman is. or what the, I can't define it. Because you, you're blind to because of the evil in your heart. Well, verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Well, I'll tell you, that position that I just stated would be evil if it were loveless. It is not. It's not loveless to stand up against wrong. You can tell them all you want. Listen, I love you, but you are out of your mind. Uh, And they'll, they'll try to spin that one on you, too. Just stand your ground. Uh, and they'll have a chance that way. But if you cave in and, and give them an inch, you're just helping them. It may take a long time, but don't back down from the truth uh, because you think you're being harsh. You know, evil tries to do that. It tries to make us feel guilty for being right. Um, anyway, back to this. Blessed is the man who, verse 2, Isaiah 56. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Uh, The Sabbath commandment was a special sign between God and the Jewish people. That's what the Bible teaches. Exodus 31, verse 13, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. It was never given to the Gentiles. And many churchgoers have struggled with this. The Jews, they were careless about their Sabbath in the wilderness. Ezekiel, he returns to that. He's much later, but he returns to that to remind them in Ezekiel 20. And they were careless about their Sabbaths, even in the land. Jeremiah calls them out on that in Jeremiah 17. After they returned from the Babylonian captivity, they were careless about the Sabbath again. Nehemiah 13, and other places too, but those are enough. The Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, the end of the week, the day that God sanctified uh, creation, actually, his creation. He didn't sanctify creation, but his work, his creative work. But then sin came. Sunday is the Lord's Day. That's what John called it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. It's the first day of the week, not the last day of the week, and it commemorates the resurrection, the defeat of sin, the ultimate defeat of, ultimately the defeat of sin. And so the Christian is called... Uh, to, to we're not called to honor the Sabbath. And to say that there's a Christian Sabbath confuses the whole thing. There's no Christian Sabbath. Uh, that was for the Jewish people. The church is not under that. It belongs to Mosaic law. 
God's people rest in Christ, and then moving forward from that, we work to, um, to demonstrate our allegiance and to uphold righteousness. So uh, there's another um, thing on the Sabbath day. Uh, New Testament, Paul says, you know, one man esteems one day higher than another, fine. Another man doesn't esteem any of them, fine. There's no big deal with God. And then they hated him for that. The Jews did, many of them. Verse 3, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. So now Isaiah is saying, listen, the Lord loves people. He wants to save people. And there are things about this through history. We don't understand all of it, but we understand enough of it. The treatment that Ruth received by Boaz, as well as the Bethlehem people, the people of Bethlehem, the Israelites of Bethlehem, demonstrated that this law was never meant to exclude the Gentiles. Uh, People who came to this confession, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16 She was not excluded. She was brought in. In fact, she's grandmother of David. So, very powerful. Again, the most mentioned human in the Bible, and the one that Messiah associates his throne with. Uh, There's a Gentile woman that is involved in that. Uh, These verses in Isaiah apply mainly to the end times. He's reversing Deuteronomy 23. But we'll be here all night if we go back to Deuteronomy and read these things. And so there were laws about the eunuchs concerning the temple. There were restrictions. And now the prophet is saying things are going to change. Uh, God has a heart for these people, and, and so did the prophet. And so he's showing a wider application beyond the chosen people. And when the eunuch says, here I am, a dry tree, it alludes to his inability to have children. But God's going to get to that too. Verse 4, thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. In the context of the days of Isaiah, the Sabbaths were, were very much a part of that culture. This is long before the church was came about. Verse 5, Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of the sons and daughters, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Just remember, Daniel was a eunuch. The Ethiopian that Philip led to the Lord was also one. There are deep spiritual implications here, and the context is critical to crack the code as to what's being said. I will give in my house and within my walls a place. So God is saying, it's almost like he's saying, I'm going to have a nook in my temple that is a testimony to your righteousness, to your obedience. And in other words, God's not going to forget That's what matters with him, the life you live, the righteous life. He says, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Well, because they could not have sons and daughters, God was going to give them something better to be remembered by than merely having children. And that society is a big deal. If you you 
died without having children, that was really, you were, man, God must not have liked you. It's a very big deal. Well, God is saying here, no, your testimony is bigger than that. You can have a thousand kids, but what's your testimony? And that's what I'm going to hold up. That's what he's telling the eunuch here in this section. Otherwise, there's no way to make the verse make sense. And a name better than that of sons and daughters. So he's telling the eunuch, I know you couldn't have children. That's all right. You can have a testimony. And that, that is better. Now, that doesn't mean if you have kids that your testimony doesn't. Your testimony is just as valid as the eunuch's testimony. But that's what it comes down to. Um, he says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Yeah, well, eventually people will forget about your kids, but not about you uh, in heaven, that's where, where it matters most. And so when the eunuch died without children, and their house was, they had no house to continue, no, no legacy to pass on as far as offspring, they had a spiritual legacy. David's son, Absalom built himself a monument because he didn't have any children. And that's how important it was. Second Samuel 18. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken up, had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. Well, Absalom was totally in love with himself, and he was a monster. But, but what that does tell us is the stigmatism attached to not having children in that society. Of course, John the Baptist, remember, uh, he, was, he was a spiritual eunuch, you could say. He was without children. He never married. He was all about the Lord's work. He was a, you could, a Nazarite from birth, like Samson, you could say, that very easily. So... Uh, what God is saying to those who are handicapped in life, I'm going to take care of you. You just do the right thing. Verse 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Well, that's what I meant when I said, well, if, whether you have kids or not, that's not the point. What do you do with your righteousness? And that's what God is saying here in verse 6. Yeah, all right, the, I'll take care of the eunuch, but about you others, the others who don't have a handicap. I'm also looking at how you, you, your behavior is, and I'm going to expand this to foreigners. I'm going to bring them in. So again, verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join him, themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Paul likely referring to this in Romans 15 when he mentions he wanted the Gentile converts to be holy before the Lord, maintaining the integrity. In other words, he wasn't just trying to get Gentiles to agree with him. He wanted them to be born again and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he's likely tying it into this verse in Isaiah. Verse 7 now, Isaiah 56. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Verse 8. The Lord God or the Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those 
who are gathered to him. Isaiah is just totally evangelical. Uh, he's looking to uh, just, he has a global view and beyond just the Jewish people. And he is a Jewish person. My holy mountain, of course, is the temple in Jerusalem. In scripture, the burning of incense pictures prayers. And it's flat out said, of course, in Revelation and other places. But um, the holy incense in the, the temple symbolized the prayers of the saints rising to God. The outer court of the temple was supposed to be an area for foreigners to come and to worship. But by the time Christ comes, they had turned that outer court of the Gentiles into a marketplace. And of course, they were abusing, they were gouging the people. And uh, Christ braided a whip and flipped over tables and rebuked them for it. And he quotes this passage here. He says, it is written in here in Isaiah, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And uh, so there, Isaiah, the most quoted of all the Old Testament prophets. David, the most named in the Bible. Isaiah, the most quoted Old Testament writer in the New Testament. For my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the idea that the foreigners would pray to Yahweh, that goes back to when Solomon dedicates the temple. He, in, in chapter 8, he speaks about the foreigners also uh, being a part of the system of worship. And we in the New Testament, we, we, we see it all come together. Now, the last section, the last three verses, we go right through them. They're really setting us up for the next few chapters that are coming. It's almost an abrupt return. to It is an abrupt return to the rebuke of hypocrites and apostates. Verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. So it's emphatic. Um, he's, he's calling this, uh, these, it's, it's metaphor for judgment coming. These are the enemies that will be coming into the land of Israel and judging them as happened to the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and largely to the southern kingdom by the Assyrians also. Verse 10, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. So a little while ago, I went on a little righteous tirade about this whole gender nonsense, and that's what it is. And you may have said, well, that was pretty harsh. Well, I didn't call them dumb dogs. You know, this is what it takes. Like, let's just get to what this is. Okay, regular words aren't working for you. I'll use some imagery here. The beasts of the field are summoned to devour the blind watchmen. They were supposed to see the enemy, what Satan was doing. They were supposed to see the things that would hurt the people. But they chose to be blind to those things. Like drunken leaders. They were incompetent and they caused pain and suffering. In America, we have people running parts of America that hate America. And you have it here in scripture. They hated Israel. All they cared about was it were themselves. And so the sleeping dogs who could not bark, they were supposed to give warning for everybody to wake up. But they weren't alert, the leaders. They loved to sleep. And they, were, uh, they refused to, to sound the alarm. Uh, what are, Ezekiel, again, God refers to Ezekiel as the watchman. 
You're supposed to sound the alarm. Imagine if there's fire in a building and you just run out the building and you don't say anything. It's an occupied building. And you don't say anything to anybody. Well, that would be downright evil. That would be criminal. And God is saying, these leaders in Israel are criminals because they have the law. They have the moral code. And they're not exercising it. They're abusing it. And they're hurting people. In verse 11, yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one to his own gain from his own territory. Oh, you think Isaiah didn't have family members like this? You think that there were loved ones he didn't have like this? And he, But he's responsible to God. He's calling it like it is. It doesn't help anybody to sweep these things under the rug. That's what these leaders were doing. And the prophets would have none of it. Uh, Hosea, you know, his, he calls his wife Gomer, calls it like it was with her. Broke his heart. But in the end, he wins. But man, did he have to go through... Um, she put him through so much. Uh, verse 12. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Yeah, I just want to satisfy themselves at the expense of the people. Ezekiel 34 deals with the unfaithful shepherd even further. But in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 5, God says to the shepherds, you care for my people without being self-righteous without being condescending. Uh, you shepherd the flock of God. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, again, going through your word is better than sitting home watching television. It's, um, it's hard work, but it's worth it. And um, we know throughout your word, you remind us about reaping what we sow, of what it takes to overcome evil and, and the so many levels of evil in our lives. May you indeed give us a chance to share the gospel. We all hurt for those lost souls in our lives. We want to see them repent and have a relationship with you. But there's a very real devil, and uh, you also have very real disciples that are willing to be used against the interests of hell. May you get us all home safely tonight. In these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.